You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. SpyCast's sole purpose is to educate our listeners about the past, present and future of intelligence and espionage. Every week, through engaging conversations, we explore some aspect of a vast ecosystem that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. We talk to spies, operators, mole hunters, defectors, analysts and authors to explore the stories and secrets, tradecraft and technology of the secret world. We are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax and enjoy the show. How dare you, Joe Weisberg, make me rethink my comfortable loathing of the Russians? So said former Chief of CIA Counterintelligence, James Olson, in a review of the book featured in this week's episode. I sat down with Joe Weisberg to dig into his book, Russia Upside Down, An Exit Strategy for the Second Cold War. Listeners may know him as creator of the award-winning and hugely popular TV series, The Americans, and a much fewer number of listeners may even know him as a former CIA officer. Here Joe's take to see how we get out of the Second Cold War. Along the way we discuss, the book is essentially an argument with his younger self, who hated the evil empire. His trip through the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe in the twilight of the Cold War especially experiencing it as an American Jew, the KGB corruption and Vladimir Putin, and his journey from Illinois to Langley to New York City. Well, I'm so pleased to speak to you uh, about your book, which uh, I really enjoyed. Um, Russia, <laughs> Russia has been a perennial topic on uh, SpyCast and never more so really than now uh, for a whole variety of different reasons that we can get into. So I just wanted to speak a little bit more about your book, Russia Upside Down, but I wanted to start off with one of the enconiums that I uh, read, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, James Olson, former chief of CIA counterintelligence, he said, how dare you, Joe Heisberg, make me rethink my comfortable loathing of the Russians? So <laughs> can, you, can you... I love that. I told him that was the best blurb I ever saw. The whole thing was so funny. And so great. I was wondering, how did, how did you manage to do that? How did you manage to make him rethink his loathing of the Russians? Well, I think that in a way, that's the goal of the book. So I, I had 300 pages and I wanted to make an argument, not to necessarily get people to abandon everything they thought about Russia or the Soviet Union. I haven't abandoned everything I thought about it, but to kind of look through a little bit through a different lens and maybe shift perspective a little bit. And, you know, I really appreciate what, what Jim wrote about that. I, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit tongue, tongue in cheek too, because he's a, always been a, like one of the smartest people ever and with very, you know, thoughtful and, and nuanced views. But I wouldn't say that about myself. I would say that when I was, you know, working at the CIA and in my younger years, I had a very one-dimensional view of this evil empire, this totalitarian state that we had to fight because we were the good guys and we were the bad guys. And the book that I've written is essentially a kind of argument with myself or maybe with my younger self to say, huh, I think you were not looking at that in all the complexity that you might have been. 
So you started off looking at the world like uh, George W. Bush, but later on you ended up like George H. W. Bush. Yeah, well, it's funny. I think, you know, I think you may be a little bit younger than me because anyone of my age would have said, so you looked at the world like Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and, that, and that was, that. yes, I did. Yeah, I was, I guess I was trying to keep the analogy and the Bush family, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so t- I mean, before we get into the the, the book, um, one of the things I love about our podcast is that it ranges from people working the Russia desk at CIA or NSA through to just the average person on the street that loves a good spy yarn. So let's just go up to 30,000 feet for a minute. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about who you are um, and when you were in the CIA? I'm currently a 55-year-old guy living in New York City. My main job, my day job is writing for television. Uh, I created a show called The Americans, which I would—I don't normally expect many people to have seen it, but I would expect a high proportion of your listeners probably, probably have seen it. And uh, that TV show you know, in part came out of some of my experiences actually working in intelligence. I didn't work long or much in intelligence. I joined the CIA in my mid-20s. I worked there for about three and a half years. I was really in training almost the entire time and then worked a couple office jobs. And I quit before going on my first uh, tour abroad. But that was enough to give me a kind of inside look at how espionage works and learn some things and kind of break the spell of that fantasy that kids growing up in America have about the CIA and how it works. And that put me in a kind of unique position to write an interesting TV show about it. So, you know, I'll just say a little bit more that from a very young age, I was really obsessed with the Soviet Union. I loved it. And what I mean by loved it is I loved to hate it. (laughs) I loved hating that place. It was the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. It was, first of all, it truly, truly was a fascinating place. It was so interesting. There were so many people being repressed there who I felt, you know, great sympathy and still feel sympathy for. I'm not, not, again, I don't think I had everything about it wrong. But, you know, when I joined the CIA and saw what I saw there and then came out of the CIA, things started to, you know, slowly appear to me that maybe I didn't, I didn't quite know as much as I thought I did. And where did you grow up? Give us a sense of place. I grew up in Chicago on the north side of the city, very close to Wrigley Field. So on on game days, I could hear the fans cheering, and I was a big Cubs fan. And there was something called the Lakefront Liberals, and that were those were people like my parents who you know were very were you know they were all Democrats and they were all liberal, and they were called that really because they were engaged in a kind of a long running conflict with Mayor Daley, the first Mayor Daley and the kind of political machine that he had. And they didn't like the sort of bureaucracy and corruption that went along with that. And, uh, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is that they weren't that different from conservatives in their foreign policy. Maybe that's an overstatement. In their views of the Soviet Union, there was a pretty nonpartisan consensus that this was a, you know, evil, evil place. So I got that you know, probably as strongly as Ronald Reagan's kids got it. I mean, just thinking back on the Cold War, that certainly comes through in Truman, uh, Kennedy and Carter after the Soviets invade Afghanistan. But I think you're right in your analysis that probably most of our listeners have seen your show. But we're here to talk about the book. So tell us a little bit more about the book, Russia Upside Down. One of the first things I thought when I saw it was, it's almost, I don't know if this is something you had in mind, but it's almost related or it reminded me of Churchill's uh, quote about the Soviet Union being a riddle inside a sphinx trapped in an enigma and Russia upside down. I think certain people certainly see that when they look at Russia. It's like things are not what they seem. Things are upside down. Things are mysterious. We need to cut through the smoke. So tell us a little bit more about the title and about what you set out to do in the book. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, comparison you make there. And I think that that sort of widespread idea of Russia being indecipherable and and a puzzle is one version of Upside Down. And I think my version of Upside Down is a little bit different. And and I I like to start with myself and kind of personalizing it because I know myself best and how my own mind worked, that what I had Upside Down was not that it was or wasn't understandable. It was that I thought I understood it And I thought it was all black and white, and they were evil, 
bad, determined to spread totalitarianism, communism everywhere. And we were good, virtuous, the guardians of and spreaders of freedom and democracy. It's not, when I say that was upside down, I don't mean it was the reverse. I mean, it, it was such a, it was so wrongheaded that, that it was upside down. And, you know, fundamentally, both countries had good sides and bad sides. Both countries did good things and, and bad things. I don't really like to try to compare them and say which is worse, because what's the, what's the point? There's no reason you have to compare and say which is worse. Maybe if you were living in one, you had an opportunity to go live in the other. Maybe then it would be relevant who actually is worse or what's a better place to live. But in just politics in general, I think that's actually a weird question. It's a, a question born of kind of competition and, and negativity and hostility. So the real question is, can we accept that they have good sides and bad sides and we have good sides and bad sides and that it's our job and our role to focus on our problems and what we're doing wrong? And if we take on the job and role instead, as I did personally and as I would say our foreign policy establishment did and as I would say our country did to a significant degree, if we take on the job and role that we got to fix them that usually goes hand in hand with kind of a blindness and denial that we have plenty to work on at home. Otherwise, why not work on that? You might actually be able to do something about that. So we've discussed one part of the book. Let's go to the other side of the colon. Let's go to the an exit strategy for the second Cold War. What is that exit strategy? I'll give you uh, sort of two parts of it. The first part is to a certain degree what I just said. The first part is for people, you know, I did this myself. I'm not saying everybody has to do it. I'm not saying everybody should do it. I'm not saying everybody thinks like I did as one-dimensionally. But if you are stuck in a kind of one-dimensional thinking, the first thing is to kind of expand your horizons, be less judgmental, recognize how complex things are, and, you know, start to let go of the idea that just as we felt about the Soviet Union, that Russia is a fully autocratic, in every way repressive state, determined to spread autocracy around the world, determined to undermine American democracy. By the way, I'm not saying all of that is 100% false. I'm saying that if we only see the country that way, we are missing the boat. Now, if you can expand your horizons a little bit in that way, then you can look afresh and say, is Russia and Putin, are they just attacking us over and over and over because we're so good and we're so virtuous and we're so democratic and they don't like it? Or is it possible that we've attacked them just as much as they've attacked us and we've got caught in this kind of mutual series of attacks and escalations? I think that's what happened. And I'll give you one example, which is that after the Soviet Union fell, there was obviously a pretty disastrous decade in Russia in the 90s. And then Putin came in. And there are strong indications that I think were pretty clear at the time and that are pretty clear in retrospect that he did not have the level of hostility to the West then that he has now. That in fact, he was somewhat open to a positive cooperative relationship with the West. He wanted to strengthen the Russian economy in part through positive economic ties with the West. After September 11, he was incredibly supportive in a very emotional way, vocally, but also practically in terms of sharing Russian airspace and letting us put bases in central, military bases in Central Asia. Not that he was in charge of Central Asia, but he had influence and he didn't complain about it. He was tacitly accepted it. So there were practical things like that. And also just he wasn't out railing against us all the time like he is now. And what happened, what did we do at that time? Did we give that back to him? Well, first we expanded NATO to the east. People argue about this a little bit. I tend to lean towards the school of thought that we had literally promised not to, but whatever, whether we did or not, it seems like a pretty obviously aggressive act. But you asked me about the exit strategy. The exit strategy is then if you can come around to, you know, seeing that it's a mutual, a mutually constructed new Cold War rather than just them as the bad guys, maybe the next thing to do is pull back on some of what we're doing. I, for example, recommend a couple of things in the book, including let's just lift sanctions. Let's just lift them. They don't work. They don't accomplish what they're intended to. They're a very aggressive and hostile attack on the Russian economy. I don't know what would happen if we did that. Maybe nothing would happen. I don't see how things would get worse, but maybe they could even get worse. But I think there's a reasonable chance that they would respond in kind by pulling back on some of their attacks. And what's the cost? If, if it doesn't work, you always put them back. One of the things I was thinking when you were talking there was, it sounds a little bit like, the revisionist historians, um, you know, the first wave of historians, it's 
you know, we were the good guys. It was all on the Soviet Union. They were the aggressor. Uh, we just reacted. And then the revisionists came along and said, well, it wasn't quite that simple. You know, we done some things that got us locked in this dynamic as well. Is that is that right? Yeah, I, I think that is correct in two different ways. One, I'll point to a very specific guy who was writing in the 80s when I was deep into my Cold Warrior phase, which is Stephen Cohen, who, you know, was a professor at Princeton and, and a writer. And, you know, his academic specialty, I think, was Bukharin, Bukharin, but he wrote a lot about politics. When I read him in the 80s, even though I was like a college student and he was a professor, I thought, oh, this guy's very naive. Like, I thought it was interesting what he said, but I thought he just, I thought he just didn't get it. And then when I, I sort of came around to a, a lot of his ways of looking at things without really remembering him. And then I kind of connected it back and thought, oh, I wonder if he put a little germ of an idea in my head that even while I was, you know, rejecting him was in there to kind of grow, which by the way, is one thing teachers do. I mean, the guy was a, was, was a teacher as well. So he did not have much of a following and I think was really on the fringes, not the far fringes. He had, he was one of the only guys with those views who had any public forum. You know, he was printed in the nation. He would sometimes be on talk shows. He would do public debates. But generally, generally people with those views were sent so far to the margins, I never heard of them or saw them. I really wasn't exposed to very much of that, which is part of the problem. If you have a narrow view, it doesn't help if you're not hearing alternate views a lot. So that's one thing I'll mention. And I'll also sp speak about something more recently. If you don't mind my, on your podcast, plugging another sure. podcast, there's uh, something called the SRB podcast, which is a guy named Sean Guillory at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, I think he's at a university in Pittsburgh. I don't know if I got the name right. But anyway, he has this podcast, which if you are interested in the Soviet Union or Russia, you can just disappear into this for a couple hundred hours because it is essentially professor after professor with kind of esoteric and wonderful specialties talking about what they've been able to learn largely about the Soviet Union, but also a lot about modern-day Russia, because it's freer there now than it used to be. And although they're not as open as they were once, the archives were very open, and a number of them go there and live there. And they just, I, I, just as a random example, there's a whole hour on what it was like to be deaf in the Soviet Union. So the reason I come up with that example is if you were me, and that was an evil totalitarian empire— Part of what you were doing was reducing this whole complex country to just a few little things. Like, that kind of question would never occur to you. What was it like to be deaf in the Soviet Union? Who cares? What, like, whatever. Are they, do they have deaf people? I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. Now someone has studied this, and when they put together what it was like for people to have that experience, which is we can compare to people having that experience here, we can relate to, it's just one of a hundred thousand ways in to getting how complicated that society was, right? And I think that's a big part of what I missed. I missed that it was a full country like ours. That's true even for the United States, right? People turn up and, you know, they go to D.C. and New York or maybe Disneyland and yeah. they think they know the country, but there's lots of, lots of ambiguity, lots of different textures that you can prize apart and, and, and uncover. I used to always tell my students, try to capture some of the complexity and the depth. Exactly. you got to resist that. you got to resist it. And I think it, I think people at that age are, are particularly vulnerable to it. I think that not just because of my own experience, but because I've done a little bit of reading and sort of basic psychology that suggests that there, to a certain extent, that's a stage in life where you haven't, and not everybody goes through it, or some people don't have that issue, but it's not uncommon. And so the trick is just to make sure you eventually get out of it, <laughs> the sooner the better. But by, by the way, I, I, was, that, I wanted to mention one more example that I was thinking of when you started talking about the United States and how complex it is, that every American understands both intuitively and logically that whoever the president of the United States is, they do not have full control over everything that happens everywhere in America, right? That would be laughable to think that. So if some terrible thing happens in Omaha because of whatever, a state senator or a policeman or a pedestrian or whatever did X, Y, Z, you can't generally say that's Biden's fault. Why didn't Biden make sure that didn't happen? But they don't extend that to looking at Russia, so people, I don't want to generalize, but at least a fair number of people 
think that Putin is responsible for every single bad thing that happens in Russia when Russia is as big as we are. It's actually physically bigger. Its population not quite as big, but not, but, you know, in the same ballpark. It's got as many regions and states, I and mean, they're called different things, but as many different divisions. And, and it's just a, you know, it's just a massive place that cannot be controlled by one person. By the way, I've gotten into new habit, which is anytime I say something that sounds like I'm trying to, uh, somebody might think I'm trying to defend Putin, I like to clarify that's not right. I actually am trying to see him in a more balanced way with good sides and bad sides. So I do not dispute the vast majority of the complaints against Putin and the things he's done wrong, some of them really horrific and, and immoral. I don't think everything that's said in that area is true, but most, I'd say a lot of it is, is factual. It's just not the only thing. You're saying that if we think about Vladimir Putin, it's not quite as simple as the, the kind of popular narrative that he's just, he's always had it in for America. He's always been implacably opposed to the United States. He's always been... <laughs> been slightly flippant here. He's always been pissed off that he was in the KGB and the Soviet Union lost the Cold War and, you know, they had to kind of pick up the pieces after the Soviet Union dissolved. You're saying it's not quite that simple? That is what I'm saying. It's hard to know because you can't really see in his heart. You know, you can't know exactly what's in his mind. And the fact that he is a former intelligence officer and sometimes has a problematic relationship with the truth makes it even more complicated to quite get what's going on there. But certainly what it looks like to me is that he was a KGB officer. The strong majority of KGB officers had uh, kind of unidimensional anti-American views. He seems to have been more or less in that camp. And then when he, you know, sort of started going on a different path, he opened up and broadened his view and let go of some significant amount of that anti-American, anti-Western animosity, it seems now to be back. But as I was saying earlier, it seems that at least a significant part of the reason it's back is things we have done. I just wondered if we could just open that up a bit more. Obviously, if people want to get the full context and all of this, they're going to have to buy the book. I just want to pull apart the five things to reconsider about modern-day Russia and then earlier in the book, you talk about eight things that I misunderstood. And we've touched on this a little bit already, and I don't expect you to go through the eight and then the five programmatically, but just help us understand that pivot from here's the Soviet Union that I thought I knew, and then today, here we are, here's things that people are getting wrong about Russia. Because like you say, you're writing this book to yourself, and I think that I think that if our listeners can look in that mirror that you were reading yourself from, I think that it will be quite instructive and helpful. Well, I'll just mention a little bit how I sort of launched into reassessing things in that way uh, that I think will be interesting to your listeners. There was a KGB officer who many of you may have heard of called Viktor Cherkashin. And he either ran or had a profound hand in running both Alder James and Robert Hansen. So not surprisingly, he was a very successful KGB officer. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, a number of KGB officers wrote books, which, again, you all understand would not have been possible in Soviet times. But once the Soviet Union fell, that was, that was now an open possibility. And I read his book, and I had a very powerful reaction to it. Because even at the time I read it, I maybe started to open up a bit of my views about the Soviet Union. But I still saw the KGB in very simplistic terms. And almost like the people who worked there, I almost saw them as like Bond villains, like just bloodthirsty, conscienceless, you know, robotic killers. You know, I just did not, I, I, knew the, I knew to say the line, oh, they have families just like us. And on some level, I believed that. But on a lot of other levels, I didn't really think it was just like us. I, I thought that these were sort of the evil instruments of this place. Well, I read his book, and in fact, he and his friends who he described sounded an awful lot like me and my friends at the CIA. You know, they were, first of all, they, they liked their jobs, they cared about what they did, they were patriotic, they believed in their country. They had different values and a different political system they believed in, but they believed in it in a sort of a similar way, which ultimately isn't that much of a surprise because anybody who goes you know, to work for an intelligence officer, and remember this includes Putin, is kind of a highly idealistic person who wants to fight for their country. And especially with Putin, that 
tends to get sort of turned around into, well, he's devious, untrustworthy, a liar, and a creep. But that isn't actually, I would not describe that as the main profile of an intelligence officer. I, I would, there are, can be elements of that, of course, but I would say more significant is the desire to serve one's country and patriotism and idealism. So Cherkassian and his friends were like that. And also, I, I think a lot of people listening here know that intelligence agencies specifically hire, in part, people who have good social skills because they have to be able to go out and recruit foreign agents, which requires good social skills and being able to get people to like you. And because of that, you know, my friends at the CIA, we were, it was a pretty friendly, likable social bunch. I would sort of challenge you not to like most of the people I worked with. And that seemed to be true, maybe not as fully, but somewhat broadly, also in the KGB, or at the very least was, it seemed extremely true of Cherkashin himself. So I started thinking, well, okay, I seem to have really been highly off base about the KGB, which was one of the things I had studied the most. I had read all about it. I read all the books that were available. I, I, I you know, just done, all, well, not all the books, but I'd, I'd researched widely and still not had my balloon puncture. And so I started thinking, what else did I, what else did I have wrong? And I started kind of systematically trying to identify specific areas where I had had a misunderstanding and, and tried to develop a more complex view. So one of the ones, I do one about the KGB where I go into great depth about the, you know, a couple interesting things about the KGB are that everybody knows the Soviet Union was very corrupt, right? The, the economy functioned in large part through corruption because it wasn't very functional. Well, interestingly enough, the KGB wasn't very corrupt. It actually was one of the least corrupt uh, kind of organs of the entire state. And people knew that. And KGB officers had a kind of esprit de corps built in large part around the fact that they were this sort of uncorrupt oasis in the, in the middle of the country. And, and I, I read a great book about anti-corruption campaign launched by the KGB by Andropov, I think in the 70s and then going through into the 80s, where they took on the Food Grocers Association. Now, if you said, who's going to win? KGB or Food Grocers Association, you're going to be like the KGB. And they didn't. They lost. Because I have the name wrong. It's not Food Grocers Association. It's, you know, it's people who are responsible for bringing food in to the cities and distributing it. So they did have a lot of power. But they had so much power and so many connections and so many powerful people who got food from them and bribes from them and everything else that even the KGB could not take them on. But it's interesting that they wanted to because they felt corruption was destroying the country and they wanted to keep it from happening. Well, that's, that's just a different KGB than, than the one I imagined. And again, I, I want to make sure to mention they did grossly repress and mistreat dissidents. They did, in some instances, torture dissidents. They did, in, in uh, quite a number of incidents, put dissidents into psychiatric prisons and torture them with, you know, psychotropic medication. I mean, we're talking, we're talking really evil stuff. However, that was not where most of their resources went. It was not where most of their energy went. And it was not what the vast majority of their officers and employees were involved with. So that doesn't diminish it or make it less significant. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com.
I was just thinking, when you were talking about reading the KGB memoir, it reminded me when I read uh, Yuri Moden, who at one point was the handler for the Cambridge Five, has book my five Cambridge friends. And what you were talking about reminded me of reading that book. Oh, that's interesting. When did that book come out? That book must have came out, I think it may have been the early 90s. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's how I should read that. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah, give us one more, please, Joe. Well, the other one I was going to mention was that I was really brought up both in my community. I was, I am Jewish and my family was not religious, but we went to synagogue a couple times a year and pretty reliably at any high holiday service, there would be at one point a speech about the Jewish refuseniks, the Jews who had applied to emigrate from the Soviet Union, been refused and then fired from their, technically I think were forced to resign from their jobs when their exit visas were denied. And then became sort of pariahs a little bit. And that was a very significant cause and one that I cared about and related to. And I couldn't believe this evil empire was doing this to these people. And by the way, it was awful. So again, don't get me wrong. It was awful. I then went to the Soviet Union for a summer. It was pretty late. It was about 1988. You know, so things were starting to change there. But I don't believe what I'm about to say is is fully explained by that change. I met a refusenik. I smuggled in like a Seiko watch that I was given by an organization in Chicago. And I was told that he would sell this on the black market and be able to live for a whole year. I went to meet this guy who was great, a really thoughtful, great guy, but he didn't live in some kind of like basement hovel shoveling coal into a boiler the way I expected. He lived in a nice apartment. And I mean, pretty nice, you know. And when we were talking, he told me, he mentioned something about a, his subscription in Newsweek. And I was like, huh? You have a how? No. That, that that does not make any sense in terms of everything I spent the last decade learning about the Soviet Union. You can't have a subscription news. You say, oh, somebody sent me a subscription. The way it works is I get a notice each week in my mailbox from the post office that it's arrived. I go to the post office. They put me in a special room. They bring me my copy. I can sit there and read it for as long as I want. Then I give it back and I leave. And I was like, wow, that's so weird and great and different from how I thought things work. It's so bureaucratic. It's so specific. It's so odd. And and again, I'm not saying that would have been like that in 1955, but I think it was like that for quite some time before 1988 as well. And I just started to sort of rethink some things. Like, for example, how come almost every Soviet Jew that I ever met had a university education? It was interesting because they complained very bitterly about not being able, about having quotas that made it difficult for that to get into top universities. And that was true. And yet, most of them had, had a, got to go to some university and get a college education. And interestingly enough, it wasn't just Jews there were quotas for. It was all the nationalities. Because one of the things the Soviet Union was trying to do was create balance and give everybody opportunity. So, it, you know... I, you know, was that anti-Semitic to have those quotas? Maybe some of the implementation was more anti-Semitic. It's a very complex issue. We know ourselves in our country how complex those issues are. But it was, the way I would phrase it is, that is an example of many things I saw where it's not that there wasn't plenty of anti-Semitism, but it was not the clearly, baldly, vicious anti-Semitic state I saw. and, And it could probably, or I had imagined, and it probably could be, I mean, it's a very rough analogy, but it tended to make me think, you know, Soviet Union in the 60s or 70s or 80s, tended to make me think more like America in the 1930s. There were a lot of similarities in the way anti-Semitism functioned in those two places. And also, like America in the 1930s, there were counterforces, very powerful ones, that, you know, were against anti-Semitism, including the fundamental ideology of the state, which provided no, no small protection. So... As usual, I'm not dismissing some of the things I thought and knew, but it was essentially a misunderstanding to see them as the whole story. You had been to the Soviet Union before the wall came down, right? You went to um, Leningrad. Yeah, well, just before. Yeah, just, just before. before. Could you yeah. tell us about that experience being at the highlight of the Soviet Union? And and I know that the younger Joe maybe read that in one way, but I wondered in writing this book, could you could you tell our listeners if you reflected back on that experience or as time has unfolded, has your view on that experience of being there changed? It was a trip that had a huge influence on me, but not in necessarily the most obvious ways. By the way, also, essentially on that same trip, my brother and I went all through Eastern Europe. 
And I was really, uh, the thing I remember, I remember a lot of things from going through Eastern Europe, including going to Romania. And Romania was still, you know, in a lot of places, including places we went, there was horses and buggies. And it was Ceausescu and had a kind of Stalinist feel and it was scary. And, and the border patrol people on the railroads were intimidating. And, you know, I thought, oh, well, I, I'm getting a little bit of a look at what Stalinism was like. So that was fascinating all, the, all those years after Stalin. But then when I went to Leningrad, and I always slip up and still call it Leningrad. That's one of the dangers of going somewhere. It's hard to, hard to adjust to a new name. But, you know, I spent a summer there. I was studying Russian at Leningrad State University. And the thing that sticks out for me was there were a number of these things that just didn't fit with this view I had. I told you the story of, of one of them about the, the, the Refusenik and the, and the subscription in Newsweek. I also think about the fact that I went to this organization in Chicago, Jewish Relief Organization, and they had me smuggle something in to the Soviet Union. It's interesting. Based on my view of the Soviet Union at the time, I should have thought, huh, well, that's why would you have a 22-year-old guy do this? I could go to jail. I could go to, you know, the remnants of the, of the gulag. Why would I? They could throw me out. Well, nobody could have cared less. And I think there was sort of this combination of wanting to perceive the Soviet Union as an incredibly dangerous, repressive place that would get not just its own people, but go after me, that did not sync with the reality of how they generally treated visitors, which was, you know, just didn't have, it just was, it was not remotely dangerous to, to sneak something into a, to a refusing. And I think that indicated something about the system. I'm not saying it indicated there was no repression. I'm not saying that. And of course, most of the people who suffered there were Russians, not visitors. But it says something. It says something that it was more liberal in that respect than I ever, ever anticipated. But, but you asked me about the impact of the trip. And this is, I think, for me, the most interesting thing. Because I had such a strong kind of dogmatic view, I couldn't absorb any of that information. The things that didn't fit, I kind of didn't see them. Like even the thing about Newsweek, I sort of raised my eyebrow. And then I think I sort of somewhere between forgot about it and tucked it into the very back of my brain, where I imagine it's sort of lingering for 20 years until the moment was right when my mind was a little more open and then it jumped back into the front. And, and I think the whole, the whole trip was sort of like that. We're talking about your book, but, you know, many people will have seen the Americans and this will be a question that will be going through their heads. So, you know, when you wrote the Americans, was it the Joe 2.0 or was it the Joe... 1.0 because it seems to me you know someone that's like a huge fan of the of the show you know Philip and Elizabeth and and people of their ilk are, are humanized they're they're given a face they're people with hopes and dreams and you know I know that may sound a little bit cliched but yeah they're not just this reductionist monolithic you know they're not just automatons who don't think about anything, you know, they're driven by uh, desires, the ideology and so forth. So just break that down for us in relation to your current book. I like that you asked in numbers and I'm going to answer in numbers. <laughs> it was Joe 1.8. Okay, right. So okay. I, I, had, I, had, I had gotten to the point where I had really rethought my fundamental unidimensionality and seeing the world. And I had rethought it so significantly that it seemed not just possible and true, but like a good idea to write a show where the heroes were KGB officers and where they were going to be portrayed as sympathetic. And I was going to ask an audience to relate to them and connect to them. Again, you can imagine from everything I'm saying, it's not like I expect the audience not to be concerned with some of their murderous activities. On the contrary, but I wanted the audience to treat it sort of the same way they would a CIA officer who did some some murderous things, or in a fictional world did some murderous things, that they could also understand the person as having good motivations and patriotic, and not just Philip, who was more sort of open-minded and a little more open to the West, but even the more dogmatic Elizabeth, that, you know, that should be, boy, I could really relate to her. I mean, I was changing, but I was... That's sort of how I saw the world, just on the on the other on the other side. 
I, I had come along far enough to get to that point, which was which was pretty far. By the way, it's not to say that I don't expect to spend the rest of my life at Joe 2.0 either. I hope I'm going to keep moving wherever, in some direction or another. Um, maybe no longer in numbers. I don't know. But uh, the, the final thing, the, the f- last couple of points from 1.8 to 2, now you're probably regretting asking me to No, it's very helpful. The last, <laughs> the last couple of points were that I did so much reading and was exposed to so much new information while researching, you know, storylines for the show that I just continued to expand my view of the complexity of the Soviet Union. I'll give you two examples that I, that I think are interesting. One is that the guy who was our uh, consultant on the show, Sergei Kostin, had written a book that I read before the show about Farewell, who was a that was the code name for a French spy, a Russian who had been recruited by the French or volunteered to the French and gave them a, a lot of information, uh, I think in the 70s or 80s, I can't remember which. And there was this passage in the book where it talked about his execution because he was caught and executed. And it's, by the way, it's an amazing, crazy story. I just could not recommend this book highly enough. But anyway, the Soviets were very concerned about how to execute people, even traitors, and they wanted to be done in a humane way. So they put together this whole system and that they used over and over and over again. I mean, by the way, their rate of execution was not sky high and capital punishment went in and out of legality there, but, but they did execute people. And uh, the method was that there was a special team, an execution squad, and anybody who was sentenced to die would have an appeal and they would make the appeal and then they wouldn't know what was going on. Well, the execution squad would come to get the guy from their jail cell. They would give no signs that they were an execution. If it would only be like one or two of them, then no signs they were an execution squad. And they would say to the guy, they would tell the guy like, we have to move you to a different cell or something like that. And then they'd march them down to the basement and then they'd go in front of like a kind of official there. And the official would say, your appeal has been denied and your sentence is about to be carried out. And then at the exact moment, somebody would shoot them in the back of the head. And their idea is they didn't want people to suffer by, you know, knowing their execution was coming and then spending weeks, months, years, you know, sort of the way that we do it. You know, there's a tremendous amount of psychological suffering there. By the way, I don't want to overhype their method either, right? They got buried in a mass grave. Their family had trouble finding out it ever even happened. The family couldn't know it was buried. There were real flaws in their in their system too. But the idea that they would care about being humane, and by the way, and additionally, the idea that it was a pretty robust investigation before anybody was executed, like my view would have been, oh, they thought somebody was a traitor, shoot him in the head. That's not how, it was very hard. You really, they really had to prove it in a very different way than our courts and our judicial system works. But people who they were like 95% sure were guilty and were guilty weren't executed because they weren't 100% positive. So that really opened my eyes to some, some things about the, about the system as well. Another example I was going to give was that uh, I wrote something in the pilot where after this KGB trainer rapes Elizabeth, where somebody says, I think it's him, but somebody basically sa- says, nobody cares. I can do whatever I want here. The, the authorities almost encourage it. And I really regretted that because I, I, I should have known already, and I certainly knew soon after, that that was false. That was not true to that organization remotely. So even though I had gotten to the point of seeing that these were sympathetic human beings with a complex organization, I still was carrying some, some prejudices or, or some things I was willing to compromise for the sake of a good dramatic line. I'm almost anticipating some of the listeners, you know, like I say, it's a very diverse audience, but there's definitely Russia hawks and they're going to push back a little bit on some of this stuff. So I guess people would proffer the moral equivalence kind of argument, you know, come on, you're trying to build them up and make them not seem what they were, which is, you know, probably history's most murderous regime. And you're trying to pull America down to be on their level and you're trying to blur the boundaries and stuff. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. And then I guess the other one would be, you know, some people might 
uncharitably think, I mean, it, it makes sense. Joe 1.0 was in the CIA. Joe 2.0 is a, you know, liberal TV guy who lives in New York. That's why the shift has taken place. So I just wondered if you could respond to the first one, which is a systemic blurring of the lines between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the second one, your personal journey from being in a more mostly conservative institution to being in, you know, the the kind of TV world, which is kind of a different beast. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I really want to answer both those. I'm anxious. Like I'm going to forget the second one. Okay, I can come back one. to that so one. So I'm going to do the first yeah. one and then you can tell me again. So first thing I want to say is that you say the Soviet Union was one of the most murderous countries in history. Well, that was true under Stalin, but it wasn't true post-Stalin. You know, they weren't even in the top tier. <laughs> they weren't even, they weren't on that list after Stalin. And part of the problem that, when I, and I think one of the problems for me was that I didn't, I knew that was true. I, I knew that obviously Stalin had killed millions of people in all kinds of different horrific ways. And I understood that it had changed markedly after. I mean, I was a student of the history, but the importance of that change didn't quite affect me enough. So once I had it set in my mind that this was an evil empire, I I don't think that's really a good way to think about the Soviet Union or Stalin either, but I sure get it. (laughs) I don't think that's a crazy thing to say about the (laughs) Soviet Union or Stalin. You know, okay, okay, fine. I have some counter arguments, but also I agree, you know, but it just all remained that for me. It remained totalitarian. It remained incredibly murderous. It remained evil. It remained the place we had to fight and destroy. So I, I just want to make that distinction between two, the two Soviet unions. And then I also want to, you know, the thing about moral equivalence, I think is really, for me, interesting because I grew up at a, you know, I think now they're using whataboutism, which is a very similar concept. But when I, when I was growing up, if you really ever tried to say, well, okay, the Soviets or, or whoever did this, but what about we did that? You couldn't get halfway through that sentence before people would jump on you and say, moral equivalence, moral equivalence. And it was such a common way to kind of attack you or, or, or get out of an argument. I did it to people, by the way. That was on the, oh, you that's just moral equivalence side. And here's what I think was misunderstood there. I think that for a lot of us, and maybe all of us, when we are looking at something, for example, like you know, crimes or terrible things done by another country, our brains naturally produce what we have done that is similar for a couple of reasons. One, our brains want help understanding. They want help understanding what happened there, and they want help understanding us ourselves and what we're doing. And one way to do that is to sort of look at things and say, it's similar, it's not similar. How does it compare? And I believe the brain may also be trying to say, stop looking so one-dimensionally. Stop being so judgmental. You're not exactly the same. Maybe what you did isn't as bad, but you do, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, sure. (laughs) You do plenty of bad too. So I, I think it is serving a function to try to look at those things in comparison. And I think it's running away from the benefit to kind of throw it away or dismiss it by saying moral equivalence, moral equivalence. The other piece I'd say about it is that I think people tend to get into trouble and I I try to be very cautious about this myself. It's not a great idea to use those analogies to try to have them be exact. And it is not a good idea to use those analogies to try to decide who's better. No two crimes against humanity, for example, are equivalent or the same or need to be compared to each other to see who's worse. Who cares what's worse, the gulag or slavery? Who cares? What, what does that question mean? The question diminishes both crimes against humanity. But the fact that our country also committed long-standing horrific crimes against humanity should be thought about when we're looking at other people's crimes against humanity. Again, not in any way to diminish the crimes, but to see ourselves more clearly. Question two, Dean, if you can remember, basically just Completely Joe 1.0, of course he thought that way. He worked for the CIA. Joe 2.0, of course he thought that way. He's in the TV business. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's a, I really like that question. I have a whole section in my book where I try to ask questions like that of myself. Because one of the things I'm saying in the book is it's probably a good idea for people to sort of try to have a little more awareness of where their politics are coming from, right? There's a common, what I believe a common misconception, and you see it all over America today in a way that's really damaging from all sides that people believe they are right, they know the truth, they hold the truth. The people who disagree with them are factually, clearly wrong are lying all the time about everything. That's how they're so wrong. They couldn't even believe it themselves. So they have to be lying. I think that's a very destructive way to think and is not really consistent with too much about human nature, much more persuasive. And these are not my arguments. These are, you know, other people I've read. Jonathan Haidt makes this argument very persuasively is that you really have all these emotions and feelings and experiences and things that happen from your childhood on and they shape you in a certain psychological way that then causes you to glom on to a certain set of political beliefs. And if you can recognize that and even start to take yourself apart a little bit and see what some of those things were were for you, you you may not change your beliefs, fine, but you may change the rigidity and certainty you hold them with and and, and the contempt you hold people who disagree with you in. Am I just, from the time I was 10, just a counterintuitive thinker? It makes me feel good to argue with the consensus. I I just like that feeling. I like to be like a gadfly. Well, first of all, I I, I think it's fair to give that reader that information about myself. Now, when I take on that question, I don't don't try to dismiss it, but I can sort of chart a sort of kind of progress for myself where I became less interested in being a counterintuitive thinker. And when I look at a lot of the issues I'm discussing in this book, I have much deeper sources of feeling about them than trying to be counterintuitive, I'll give you an example of one. From a very young age, I think without being aware of it, I felt very sympathetic towards people I thought were misunderstood. And I asked myself in the book this question about Putin. Do I think that Putin is misunderstood in America and it's my job to explain him? Well, when I look back at my childhood, I had a pretty, I was pretty lonely. I didn't have a lot of friends and I felt very misunderstood. So I developed this sympathy. Now, I think that's compared to the thing about counterintuitive, I think there's some truth to that. I think that is part of the reason I'm interested in sort of rethinking and and re-explaining Putin because I think he's being misunderstood. But since I know that, since I'm thoughtful about it and know it, I can be careful with it. I can be careful that I'm not going too far in one direction. I can be careful that I'm not slipping into denial of all the horrible he's done, right? Because that's the risk. You know, when you have something like that, excuse me, that's driving you, but you don't know it, you start screwing up and you start making kind of logical and emotional errors. So I can kind of protect myself for some degree about those. So now to the one you asked, I don't know. I haven't thought about it enough. I, really stuff like this I have to think about for a lot of time before I can come up with an answer. I think off the top of my head, I, I think that there were just more powerful factors influencing me. And I, I was indicating with the counterintuitive thing that my milieu sometimes influenced me in the reverse. I wanted to go against the milieu. So when I joined the CIA, I didn't know one person who'd ever done that. I didn't know one person who'd ever considered it. You know, people didn't know what I was doing, but people did sense, at least in foreign policy, I kind of shifted to the right and becoming a little Reagan-y. And, and that they didn't, my friends didn't like that. That was like considered like a almost a personality flaw bordering like a not a crime in in the in in where I where I grew up. And I've really softened on a, on a lot of that stuff, but working in television now. I don't talk that much to people about politics and I don't I don't feel that influenced by it. I think most of these changes were before I went to work in that in that environment. And you know, is is that environment as you know sort of uniformly uh, liberal as people think? Uh, probably not, but I'm not trying to say it's balanced. I don't think it's balanced either. But uh but I don't think that's had a big effect on me. But, you know, I may have to call you next week and say I put a couple more hours into that. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, there's a lot of truth to please, that. Please do. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I'm completely with you, I used to teach at college and I would say to the students, read a different newspaper every day for three months, read one newspaper and then go to the one that's on the other side of the political spectrum and read that for three months. This is something I've done myself for like about a year and a half. And it really kind of 
pulled my views in different directions and made me think them through. But the reality is that most people don't want to do that. Most people just, they've got a sense of identity. They want to shore it up. They don't want anything that's going to interfere with that. So intellectually, I 100% agree with you, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts or maybe you can give me some wisdom as how do you get people to buy into complexity when so much of what people just want is, you know, I've got a busy day, I've got two jobs, I've got kids and so forth. And the world just needs to be reduced down to like easily digestible pieces. And I don't really have time to sift through reading Dostoevsky or engaging with Russia's <laughs> social history right, or whatever. Right. Yeah. How do you get people to embrace that ambiguity and that kind of complexity when quite often what they just want is simplicity? And a great example of that, which we brought up earlier, is uh, I think Reagan, um, Carter saw the world in shades of grey, the uh, malaise speech, and he wanted Americans to reflect on themselves and the energy crisis, and they hated him for it. Uh, Reagan came along and said, it's simple, we're the good guys, you're the bad guys, and we're going to kick their ass. And he, you know, carried every state except uh, Minnesota. Yeah, so, sorry, I know that's a lot, but complexity no, 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 no. versus it's, simplicity. It's it's a very good question. By the way, I'll just add that, you know, Masha Gessen writes really uh, thoughtfully about the role that the need to reduce anxiety played for, for Soviets and, and for Russians, that that simplistic, you know, view creates a more understandable world structure, you know, and therefore lessens anxiety. And it's a tall order to ask people to embrace more complexity if it's going to make their lives more anxious and, and make them more confused. That's a lot to ask. And I'm not even sure you can ask. I'm not sure there's anything to do about it. You know, I think that this book is my own small effort. And I, and I think that probably the thing I say in the book that would be most likely to help some small number of people who happen to be on that path anyway is that as I've gone through this change from really being very rigid, very rigid in my thinking to more open, I'm, I'm, I feel so much better. I can't tell you how much better I feel on almost every level. First of all, even on the specific political questions, to not be so angry and not be so frustrated and not have all these enemies who I think are out to get me and I'm out to get, to just let that go is a, is a great feeling. I feel better walking through life without that. In the same way, it, it tends to be, I think, or at least for me, was the same in personal relationships, right? If you have that rigidity, it also can be harder. You tend to be more judgmental of other people. I certainly was. That makes it harder to connect with people, harder to get along with people, harder to have intimate relationships. And all those things got better in my life. So, so there, I just offer that as a as an, as an incentive, because it can be very, you know, life-changing in, in a positive way. But, you know, in that section I was talking about in the book where I try to look at some of my personality quirks and see how they're influencing me, I also have a little section on grandiosity. And I, I'm trying to stay cognizant of my own, because to some degree, writing a book like this comes from a proselytizing instinct. I want to say, I know best, I know better. And, and parts of it that are still like, I'm right, I'm right, I'm more right than you, and I can change you and change the world. I don't think those impulses, I don't want to knock them 100% because they get you to write books and things like that, and which is good, but there's a real danger to them that you fall into the trap of thinking it's your job to fix the world or change the world, and you can get a very inflated view of yourself. So I, so I just I just note that also. I think just hearing you talk there from Socrates on down, I think societies always need someone that that reflects, you know, that kind of questions them or makes them see complexity or complicates the way that they view things. You know, like Socrates saying to a general, well, what is bravery at one level? Well, hmm. of course I know what bravery is, I'm a general. I think that that's an interesting function. And I, yeah, I don't think there is a, a simplistic answer to it. Um, yeah, great book and congratulations on finishing it and thanks for taking the time to speak to me, Joe. 
Well, thanks for having me on. That was, you know, particularly delightful conversation to have just an open back and forth and have enough time to really air it all out. I, it was great fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Go to our webpage where you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. We have over 500 episodes in our back catalogue for you to explore. Please follow the show on Twitter at INTLSpyCast and share your favourite quotes and insights or start a conversation. If you have any additional feedback, please email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, and you can connect with me on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter at SpyHistorian. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. The SpyCast team includes Mike Mincy and Memphis Vaughn III. See you for next week's show.